Chapter 8 of The Lost Stradivarius. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Ralph Snelson. The Lost Stradivarius by John Meade Faulkner. Chapter 8. Within a few days after this, the autumn term came to an end, and in the second week of December, John returned to Worth Maltravers for the Christmas vacation. His advent was always a very great pleasure to me, and on this occasion I had looked forward to his company with anticipation keener than usual, as I had been disappointed of the visit of a friend and had spent the last month alone. After the joy of our first meeting had somewhat sobered, it was not long before I remarked a change in his manner, which puzzled me. It was not that he was less kind to me, for I think he was even more tenderly forbearing and gentle than I had ever known him, but I had an uneasy feeling that some shadow had crept in between us. It was the small cloud rising in the distance that afterwards darkened his horizon and mine. I missed the old candor and open-hearted frankness that he had always shown, and there seemed to be always something in the background which he was trying to keep from me. It was obvious that his thoughts were constantly elsewhere, so much so that on more than one occasion he returned vague and incoherent answers to my questions. At times I was content to believe that he was in love, and that his thoughts were with Miss Constance Temple, but even so I could not persuade myself that his altered manner was to be thus entirely accounted for. At other times a dazed air, entirely foreign to his bright disposition, which I observed particularly in the morning, raised in my mind the terrible suspicion that he was in the habit of taking some secret narcotic or other deleterious drug. We had never spent a Christmas away from Worth Maltravers, and it had always been a season of quiet joy for both of us but under these altered circumstances it was a great relief and cause of thankfulness to me to receive a letter from Mrs. Temple inviting us both to spend Christmas and New Year at Royston. This invitation had upon my brother precisely the effect that I had hoped for. It roused him from his moody condition, and he professed much pleasure in accepting it, especially as he had never hitherto been in Derbyshire. There was a small but very agreeable party at Royston, and we passed a most enjoyable fortnight. My brother seemed thoroughly to have shaken off his indisposition, and I saw my fondest hopes realized in the warm attachment which was evidently springing up between him and Miss Constance Temple. Our visit drew near its close, and it was within a week of John's return to Oxford. Mrs. Temple celebrated the termination of the Christmas festivities by giving a ball on the twelfth night at which a large party were present including most of the county families. Royston was admirably adapted for such entertainments from the number and great size of its reception rooms. Though Elizabethan in date and external appearance, succeeding generations had much modified and enlarged the house, and an ancestor in the middle of the last century had built at the back an enormous hall after the classic model and covered it with a dome or cupola. In this room the dancing went forward. Supper was served in the older hall in the front, and it was while this was in progress that a thunderstorm began. The rarity of such a phenomenon in the depth of winter formed the subject of general remark, 
but though the lightning was extremely brilliant, being seen distinctly through the curtained windows, the storm appeared to be at some distance, and except for one peal the thunder was not loud. After supper dancing was resumed, and I was taking part in a polka, called, I remember, the King Pippin, when my partner pointed out that one of the footmen wished to speak with me. I begged him to lead me to one side, and the servant then informed me that my brother was ill. Sir John, he said, had been seized with a fainting fit, but had been got to bed, and was being attended by Dr. Empson, a physician who chanced to be present among the visitors. I at once left the hall and hurried to my brother's room. On the way I met Mrs. Templeton and Constance, the latter much agitated and in tears. Mrs. Temple assured me that Dr. Empson reported favorably of my brother's condition, attributing his faintness to overexertion in the dancing-room. The medical man had got him to bed with the assistance of Sir John's valet, had given him a quieting draught, and ordered that he should not be disturbed for the present. It was better that I should not enter the room. She begged that I would kindly comfort and reassure Constance, who was much upset, while she herself returned to her guests. I led Constance to my bedroom, where there was a bright fire burning, and calmed her as best I could. Her interest in my brother was evidently very real and unaffected, and while not admitting her partiality for him in words, she made no effort to conceal her sentiments from me. I kissed her tenderly, and bade her narrate the circumstances of John's attack. It seemed that after supper they had gone upstairs into the music-room, and he had himself proposed that they should walk thence into the picture-gallery, where they would better be able to see the lightning, which was then particularly vivid. The picture-gallery at Royston is a very long, narrow, and rather low room, running the whole length of the south wing, and terminating in a large two-door oriel, or flat bay-window, looking east. In this oriel they had sat for some time watching the flashes, and the wintry landscape revealed for an instant, and then plunged into outer blackness. The gallery itself was not illuminated, and the effect of the lightning was very fine. There had been an unusually bright flash, accompanied by that single reverberating peal of thunder which I had previously noticed. Constance had spoken to my brother, but he had not replied, and in a moment she saw that he had swooned. She summoned aid without delay, but it was some short time before consciousness had been restored to him. She had concluded this narrative, and sat holding my hand in hers. We were speculating on the cause of my brother's illness, thinking it might be due to over-exertion or to sitting in a chilly atmosphere, as the picture-gallery was not warmed, when Mrs. Temple knocked at the door and said that John was now more composed and desired earnestly to see me. On entering my brother's bedroom I found him sitting up in bed wearing a dressing-gown. Parnham, his valet, who was arranging the fire, left the room as I came in. A chair stood at the head of the bed, and I sat down by him. He took my hand in his, and without a word burst into tears. "'Sophie,' he said, "'I am so unhappy, and I have sent for you to tell you of my trouble, because I know you will be forbearing to me. An hour ago all seemed so bright. I was sitting in the picture-gallery with Constance, whom I loved dearly. We had been watching the lightning.' 
till the thunder had grown fainter and the storm seemed past. I was just about to ask her to become my wife when a brighter flash than all the rest burst on us, and I saw, I saw Sophie standing in the gallery as close to me as you are now. I saw that man I told you about at Oxford, and then this faintness came on me. "'Whom do you mean?' I said, not understanding what he spoke of, and thinking for a moment he referred to someone else. "'Did you see Mr. Gaskell?' "'No, it was not he, but that dead man whom I saw rising from my wicker chair the night you went away from Oxford.' "'You will perhaps smile at my weakness, my dear Edward, and indeed I had at that time no justification for it, but I assure you that I have not yet forgotten and never shall forget the impression of overwhelming horror which his words produced upon me. It seemed as though a fear which had hitherto stood vague and shadowy in the background began now to advance towards me, gathering more distinctness as it approached. There was to me something morbidly terrible about the apparition of this man at such a momentous crisis in my brother's life, and I at once recognized that unknown form as being the shadow which was gradually stealing between John and myself. Though I feigned incredulity as best I might, and employed those arguments or platitudes which will always be used on such occasions, urging that such a phantom could only exist in a mind disordered by physical weakness. My brother was not deceived by my words, and perceived in a moment that I did not even believe in them myself. "'Dearest Sophie,' he said, with a much calmer air, "'let us put aside all dissimulation. I know that what I have to-night seen, and that what I saw last summer at Oxford, are not phantoms of my brain.' and I believe that you too in your unmost soul are convinced of this truth. Do not, therefore, endeavor to persuade me to the contrary. If I am not to believe the evidence of my senses, it were better at once to admit my madness, and I know that I am not mad. Let us rather consider what such an appearance can portend, and who the man is who is thus presented." I cannot explain to you why this appearance inspires me with so great a revulsion. I can only say that in its presence I seem to be brought face to face with some abysmal and repellent wickedness. It is not that the form he wears is hideous. Last night I saw him exactly as I saw him at Oxford. His face waxen pale with a sneering mouth the same lofty forehead, and the hair brushed straight up so as almost to appear standing on end. He wore the same long coat of green cloth and white waistcoat. He seemed as if he had been standing listening to what we said, though we had not seen him till this bright flash of lightning made him manifest. You will remember that when I saw him at Oxford his eyes were always cast down, so that I never knew their color. This time they were wide open, indeed he was looking full at us, and they were a light brown and very brilliant. I saw that my brother was exciting himself, and was still weak from his recent swoon. I knew, too, that any ordinary person of strong mind would say at once that his brain wandered, and yet I had a dreadful conviction all the while that what he told me was the truth. All I could do was to beg him to calm himself, and to reflect how vain such fancies must be. 
"'We must trust, dear John,' I said, in God. "'I am sure that so long as we are not living in conscious sin, "'we shall never be given over to any evil power. "'And I know my brother too well to think that he is doing anything he knows to be evil. "'If there be evil spirits, as we are taught there are, "'we are taught also that there are good spirits, stronger than they, who will protect us. So I spoke with him a little while, until he grew calmer, and then we talked of Constance and of his love for her. He was deeply pleased to hear from me how she had shown such obvious signs of interest in his illness and sincere affection for him. In any case, he made me promise that I would never mention to her either what he had seen this night or last summer at Oxford. It had grown late and the undulating beat of the dances, which had been distinctly sensible in his room, even though we could not hear any definite noise, had now ceased. Mrs. Temple knocked at the door as she went to bed, and inquired how he did, giving him at the same time a kind message of sympathy from Constance, which afforded him much gratification. After she had left I prepared also to retire but before going he begged me to take a prayer-book lying on the table and to read aloud a collect which he pointed out it was that for the second sunday in lent and evidently well known to him as i read it the words seemed to bear a new and deeper significance and my heart repeated with fervour the petition for protection from those evil thoughts which may assault and hurt the soul i bade him good-night and went away very sorrowful Parnham, at John's request, had arranged to sleep on a sofa in his master's bedroom. I rose betimes the next morning and inquired at my brother's room how he was. Parnham reported that he had passed a restless night, and on entering a little later I found him in a high fever, slightly delirious, and evidently not so well as when I saw him last. Mrs. Temple, with much kindness and forethought, had begged Dr. Empson to remain at Royston for the night, and he was soon in attendance on his patient. His verdict was sufficiently grave. John was suffering from a sharp access of brain fever. His condition afforded cause for alarm. He could not answer for any turn his sickness might take. You will easily imagine how much this intelligence affected me and Mrs. Temple and Constance shared my anxiety and solicitude. Constance and I talked much with one another that morning. Unaffected anxiety had largely removed her reserve, and she spoke openly of her feelings towards my brother, not concealing her partiality for him. I, on my part, let her understand how welcome to me would be any union between her and John, and how sincerely I should value her as a sister. It was a wild winter's morning, with some snow falling and a high wind. The house was in the disordered condition which is generally observable on the day following a ball or other important festivity. I roamed restlessly about, and at last found my way to the picture gallery which had formed the scene of John's adventure on the previous night. I had never been in this part of the house before, as it contained no facilities for heating, and so often remained shut in the winter months. I found a listless pleasure in admiring the pictures which lined the walls, most of them being portraits of former members of the family, including the famous picture of Sir Ralph Temple 
and his family, attributed to Holbein. I had reached the end of the gallery and sat down in the oriel, watching the snowflakes falling sparsely, and the evergreens below me waving wildly in the sudden rushes of the wind. My thoughts were busy with the events of the previous evening, with John's illness, with the ball, and I found myself humming the air of a waltz that had caught my fancy. At last I turned away from the garden scene towards the gallery, and as I did so my eyes fell on a remarkable picture just opposite to me. It was a full-length portrait of a young man, life-size, and I had barely time to appreciate even its main features when I knew that I had before me the painted counterfeit of my brother's vision. The discovery caused me a violent shock, and it was with an infinite repulsion that I recognized at once the features and dress of the man whom John had seen rising from the chair at Oxford. So accurately had my brother's imagination described him to me that it seemed as if I had myself seen him often before. I noted each feature, comparing them with my brother's description, and finding them all familiar and corresponding exactly. He was a man still in the prime of life. His features were regular and beautifully modeled, yet there was something in his face that inspired me with a deep aversion, though his brown eyes were open and brilliant. His mouth was sharply cut with a slight sneer on the lips, and his complexion of that extreme pallor which had impressed itself deeply on my brother's imagination and my own. After the first intense surprise had somewhat subsided, I experienced a feeling of great relief, for here was an extraordinary explanation of my brother's vision of last night. It was certain that the flash of lightning had lit up this ill-starred picture, and that to his predisposed fancy the painted figure had stood forth as an actual embodiment. That such an incident, however startling, should have been able to fling John into a brain fever, showed that he must already have been in a very low and reduced state, on which excitement would act much more powerfully than on a more robust condition of health. A similar state of weakness, perturbed by the excitement of his passion for Constance Temple, might surely also have conjured up the vision which he thought he saw the night of our leaving Oxford in the summer. These thoughts, my dear Edward, gave me great relief, for it seemed a comparatively trivial matter that my brother should be ill, even seriously ill, if only his physical indisposition could explain away this supernatural dread which had haunted us for the past six months. The clouds were breaking up. It was evident that John had been seriously unwell for some months. His physical weakness had acted on his brain and I had lent color to his wandering fancies by being alarmed by them, instead of rejecting them at once or gently laughing them away as I should have done. But these glad thoughts took me too far, and I was suddenly brought up by a reflection that did not admit of so simple an explanation. If the man's form my brother saw at Oxford were merely an effort of disordered imagination, how was it that he had been able to describe it exactly like that represented in this picture? He had never in his life been to Royston. Therefore he could have no image of the picture impressed unconsciously on or hidden away in his mind. Yet his description had never varied. 
it had been so close as to enable me to produce in my fancy a vivid representation of the man he had seen, and here I had before me the features and dress exactly reproduced. In the presence of a coincidence so extraordinary, reason stood confounded, and I knew not what to think. I walked nearer to the picture and scrutinized it closely. The dress corresponded in every detail with that which my brother had described the figure as wearing at Oxford, a long cutaway coat of green cloth with an edge of gold embroidery, a white satin waistcoat with sprigs of embroidered roses, gold lace at the pocket-holes, buff silk knee-breeches, and low down on the finely modelled neck a full cravat of rich lace. The figure was posed negligently against a fluted stone pedestal or short column on which the left elbow leant, and the right foot was crossed lightly over the left. His shoes were of polished black leather with heavy silver buckles, and the whole costume was very old-fashioned, and such as I had only seen worn at fancy dress balls. On the foot of the pedestal was the painter's name, Batoni, Pinxit Rome, 1750. On the top of the pedestal, and under his left elbow, was a long roll, apparently of music, of which one end, unfolded, hung over the edge. For some minutes I stood still, gazing at this portrait, which so much astonished me, but turned on hearing footsteps in the gallery, and saw Constance, who had come to seek for me. Constance, I said, whose portrait is this? It is a very striking picture, is it not? Yes, it is a splendid painting, though of a very bad man. His name was Adrian Temple, and he once owned Royston. I do not know much about him, but I believe he was very wicked and very clever. My mother would be able to tell you more. It is a picture we none of us like, although so finely painted, and perhaps because he was always pointed out to me from childhood as a bad man, I have myself an aversion to it. It is singular that when the very bright flash of lightning came last night while your brother John and I were sitting here, it lit this picture with a dazzling glare that made the figure stand out so strangely as to seem almost alive. It was just after that that I found that John had fainted. The memory was not a pleasant one for either of us, and we changed the subject. Come, I said, let us leave the gallery. It is very cold here. Though I said nothing more at the time, her words had made a great impression on me. It was so strange that even with the little she knew of this Adrian Temple, she should speak at once of his notoriously evil life and of her personal dislike to the picture. Remembering what my brother had said on the previous night, that in the presence of this man he felt himself brought face to face with some indescribable wickedness, I could not but be surprised at the coincidence. The whole story seemed to me now to resemble one of those puzzle pictures or maps which I had played with as a child, where each bit fits into some other until the outline is complete. It was as if I were finding the pieces one by one of a bygone history and fitting them to one another until some terrible whole should be gradually built up and stand out in its complete deformity. Dr. Empson spoke gravely of John's illness, 
and entertained without reluctance the proposal of Mrs. Temple that Dr. Doby, a celebrated physician in Derby, should be summoned to a consultation. Dr. Doby came more than once, and was at last able to report an amendment in John's condition, though both doctors absolutely forbade anyone to visit him, and said that under the most favorable circumstances a period of some weeks must elapse before he could be moved. Mrs. Temple invited me to remain at Royston until my brother should be sufficiently convalescent to be moved, and both she and Constance, while regretting the cause, were good enough to express themselves pleased that accident should detain me so long with them. As the reports of the doctors became gradually more favorable, and our minds were in consequence more free to turn to other subjects, I spoke to Mrs. Temple one day about the picture saying that it interested me, and asking for some particulars as to the life of Adrian Temple. "'My dear child,' she said, "'I had rather that you should not exhibit any curiosity as to this man, whom I wish that we had not to call an ancestor. I know little of him myself, and indeed his life was of such a nature as no woman, much less a young girl, would desire to be well acquainted with.' He was, I believe, a man of remarkable talent, and spent most of his time between Oxford and Italy, though he visited Royston occasionally, and built the large hall here, which we use as a dancing-room. Before he was twenty, wild stories were prevalent as to his licentious life, and by thirty his name was a byword among sober and upright people. He had constantly with him at Oxford, and on his travels a boon companion called Jocelyn, who aided him in his wickednesses, until, on one of their Italian tours, Jocelyn left him suddenly and became a Trappist monk. It was currently reported that some wild deed of Adrian Temple had shocked even him, and so outraged his surviving instincts of common humanity that he was snatched as a brand from the burning, and enabled to turn back even in the full tide of his wickedness. However that may be, Adrian went on in his evil course without him, and about four years after disappeared. He was last heard of in Naples, and it is believed that he succumbed during a violent outbreak of the plague which took place in Italy in the autumn of 1752. That is all I shall tell you of him and, indeed, I know little more myself. The only good trait that has been handed down concerning him is that he was a masterly musician, performing admirably upon the violin, which he had studied under the illustrious Tartini himself. Yet even his art of music, if tradition speaks the truth, was put by him to the basest of uses. I apologized for my indiscretion in asking her about an unpleasant subject, and at the same time thanked her for what she had seen fit to tell me, professing myself much interested, as indeed I really was. Was he a handsome man? That is a girl's question, she answered, smiling. He is said to have been very handsome, and indeed his picture painted after his first youth was passed would still lead one to suppose so. But his complexion was spoiled, it is said, 
and turned to deadly white by certain experiments which it is neither possible nor seemly for us to understand. His face is of that long oval shape of which all the temples are proud, and he had brown eyes. We sometimes tease Constance, saying she is like Adrian. It was indeed true, as I remembered after Mrs. Temple had pointed it out, that Constance had a peculiarly long and oval face. It gave her, I think, an air of staid and placid beauty, which formed in my eyes, and perhaps in John's also, one of her greatest attractions. I do not like even his picture, Mrs. Temple continued, and strange tales have been narrated of it by idle servants which are not worth repeating. I have sometimes thought of destroying it, but my late husband, being a temple, would never hear of this, or even of removing it from its present place in the gallery, and I should be loath to do anything now contrary to his wishes, once so strongly expressed. It is, besides, very perfect from an artistic point of view, being painted by Batoni and in his happiest manner. I could never glean more from Mrs. Temple, but what she told me interested me deeply. It seemed another link in the chain, though I could scarcely tell why that Adrian Temple should be so great a musician and violinist. I had, I fancy, a dim idea of that malign and outlawed spirit sitting alone in darkness for a hundred years until he was called back by the sweet tones of the Italian music and the lilt of the Areopagita that he had loved so long ago. End of chapter 8 Recording by Ralph Snelson